BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Moabite Cipher by R. Austin Freeman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moabite Cipher by R. Austin Freeman. A large and motley crowd lined the pavements of Oxford Street as Thorndyke and I made our way leisurely eastward. Floral decorations and drooping bunting announced one of those functions inaugurated from time to time by a benevolent government for the entertainment of fashionable loungers and the relief of distressed pickpockets. For a Russian Grand Duke, who had torn himself away amidst valedictory explosions from a loving if too demonstrative people, was to pass anon on his way to the Guildhall, and a British prince, heroically indiscreet, was expected to occupy a seat in the ducal carriage. Near Rathbone Place Thorndyke halted, and drew my attention to a smart-looking man who was lounging in a doorway, cigarette in hand. "'Our old friend, Inspector Badger,' said Thorndyke. "'He seems mightily interested in that gentleman in the light overcoat. "'How do you do, Badger?' For at this moment the detective caught his eye and bowed. "'Who is your friend?' "'That's what I'd like to know, sir,' replied the inspector. "'I've been shadowing him for the last half-hour, but I can make him out, though I believe I've seen him somewhere. He don't look like a foreigner, but he has something bulky in his pocket.' so I must keep him in sight until the Duke is safely passed. I wish, he added gloomily, these beastly Russians would stop at home. They give us no end of trouble. Are you expecting any occurrences, then? asked Thorndyke. Bless you, sir, exclaimed Badger. The whole route is lined with plain clothesmen. You see, it is known that several desperate characters followed the Duke to England, and there are a good many exiles living here who would like to have a rap at him. Hello, what's he up to now? The man in the light overcoat had suddenly caught the inspector's too inquiring eye, and forthwith dived into the crowd at the edge of the pavement. In his haste he trod heavily on the foot of a big, rough-looking man, by whom he was in a moment hustled out into the road with such violence that he fell sprawling face downwards. It was an unlucky moment. A mounted constable was just then backing in upon the crowd, and before he could gather the meaning of the shout that arose from the bystanders, his horse had set down one hind hoof firmly on the prostrate man's back. The inspector signaled to a constable, who forthwith made a way for us through the crowd, 
but even as we approached the injured man he rose stiffly and looked round with a pale, vacant face. "'Are you hurt?' Thorndyke asked gently, with an earnest look into the frightened, wondering eyes. "'No, sir,' was the reply. "'Only I feel queer, sinking, just here.' He laid a trembling hand on his chest, and Thorndyke, still eyeing him anxiously, said in a low voice to the inspector, "'Cab or ambulance, as quickly as you can.' A cab was led round from Newman Street, and the injured man put into it. Thorndyke, Badger, and I entered, and we drove off up Rathbone Place. As we proceeded, our patient's face grew more and more ashen, drawn and anxious. His breathing was shallow and uneven, and his teeth chattered slightly. The cab swung round into Goode Street, and then, suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, there came a change. The eyelids and jaw relaxed, the eyes became filmy, and the whole form subsided into the corner in a shrunken heap, with the strange gelatinous limpness of a body that is dead as a whole, while its tissues are still alive. "'God save us! The man's dead!' exclaimed the inspector in a shocked voice, for even policemen have their feelings. He sat staring at the corpse, as it nodded gently with the jolting of the cab, until we drew up inside the courtyard of the Middlesex Hospital, when he got out briskly, with suddenly renewed cheerfulness, to help the porter to place the body on the wheeled couch. "'Well, we shall know who he is now, at any rate,' said he, as we followed the couch to the casualty room. Thorndyke nodded unsympathetically. The medical instinct in him was for the moment stronger than the legal. The house-surgeon leaned over the couch and made a rapid examination as he listened to our account of the incident. Then he straightened himself up and looked at Thorndyke. "'Internal hemorrhage, I expect,' said he. "'At any rate, he's dead, poor beggar.' as dead as Nebuchadnezzar. Ah, here comes the bobby. It's his affair now. A sergeant came into the room, breathing quickly, and looked in surprise from the corpse to the inspector. But the latter, without loss of time, proceeded to turn out the dead man's pockets, commencing with the bulky object which had first attracted his attention, which proved to be a brown paper parcel tied up with red tape. "'Pork pie, begad!' he exclaimed, with a crestfallen air, as he cut the tape and opened the package. "'You had better go through his other pockets, Sergeant.' The small heap of odds and ends that resulted from this process tended, with a single exception, to throw little light on the man's identity, the exception being a letter, sealed but not stamped, addressed in an exceedingly illiterate hand to Mr. Adolf Schoenberg, 213 Greek Street, Soho. "'He was going to leave it by hand, I expect,' observed the inspector, with a wistful glance at the sealed envelope. "'I think I'll take it round myself, and you had better come with me, Sergeant.' He slipped the letter into his pocket, and, leaving the sergeant to take possession of the other effects, made his way out of the building. "'I suppose, doctor,' said he, as we crossed into Burner Street, "'you are not coming our way. Don't want to see Mr. Schoenberg, hm?' Thornburg reflected for a moment. "'Well, it isn't very far, and we may as well see the end of the incident. Yes, let's go together.' Number 213, Greek Street, was one of those houses that irresistibly suggested the observer the idea of a church organ either jam of the doorway being adorned with a row of brass bell-handles corresponding to stop-knobs. These the sergeant examined with the air of an expert musician, and having, as it were, gauged the capacity of the instrument, selected the middle knob on the right side and pulled it briskly, whereupon a first-floor window was thrown up and a head protruded. But it afforded us a momentary glimpse only, for having caught the sergeant's upturned eye, it retired with surprising precipitancy, and before we had time to speculate on the apparition, the street door was opened and a man emerged. He was about to close the door after him when the inspector interposed. "'Does Mr. Adolf Schoenberg live here?' 
The newcomer, a very typical Jew of the red-haired type, surveyed us thoughtfully through his gold-rimmed spectacles as he repeated the name. Schoenberg? Schoenberg? Ah, yes, I know. He lives on the third floor. I saw him go up a short time ago. Third floor, back. And indicating the open door with a wave of the hand, he raised his hat and passed into the street. I suppose we had better go up, said the inspector, with a dubious glance at the row of bell-pulls. He accordingly started up the stairs, and we all followed in his wake. There were two doors at the back of the third floor, but as the one was open, displaying an unoccupied bedroom, the inspector rapped smartly on the other. It flew open almost immediately, and a fierce-looking little man confronted us with a hostile stare. "'Well,' said he. "'Mr. Adolf Schoenberg,' inquired the inspector. "'Well, what about him?' snapped our new acquaintance. "'I wish to have a few words with him,' said Badger. "'Then what do you come banging at my door for?' demanded the other. "'Why doesn't he live here?' "'No. First floor front,' replied our friend, preparing to close the door. "'Pardon me,' said Thorndyke, "'but what is Mr. Schoenberg like? I mean—' "'Like?' interrupted the resident. "'He's like a blooming sheeny, with a carroty beard and gold gig lamps.' And having presented this impressionist sketch, he brought the interview to a definite close by slamming the door and turning the key. With a wrathful exclamation, the inspector turned toward the stairs, down which the sergeant was already clattering in hot haste, and made his way back to the ground floor, followed, as before, by Thorndyke and me. On the doorstep we found the sergeant breathlessly interrogating a smartly-dressed youth, whom I had seen alight from a hansom as we entered the house, and who now stood with a notebook tucked under his arm, sharpening a pencil with deliberate care. "'Mr. James saw him come out, sir,' said the sergeant. "'He turned up towards the square.' "'Did he seem to hurry?' asked the inspector. "'Rather,' replied the reporter. "'As soon as you were inside, he went off like a lamplighter. You won't catch him now.' "'We don't want to catch him,' the detective rejoined gruffly. Then, backing out of earshot of the eager pressman, he said in a lower tone, "'That was Mr. Schoenberg, beyond a doubt, and it is clear that he has some reason for making himself scarce, so I shall consider myself justified in opening that note.' He suited the action to the word, and having cut the envelope open with official neatness, drew out the enclosure. "'My hat!' he exclaimed, as his eye fell upon the contents. "'What in creation is this? It isn't shorthand, but what the deuce is it?' He handed the document to Thorndyke, who, having held it up to the light and felt the paper critically, proceeded to examine it with keen interest. It consisted of a single half-sheet of thin note-paper, both sides of which were covered with strange, crabbed characters written with a brownish-black ink in continuous lines, without any spaces to indicate the divisions into words, and, but for the modern material which bore the writing, it might have been a portion of some ancient manuscript or forgotten codex. "'What do you make of it, doctor?' inquired the inspector anxiously, after a pause, during which Thorndyke had scrutinized the strange writing with knitted brows. "'Not a great deal,' replied Thorndyke. "'The character is the Moabite or Phoenician primitive Semitic, in fact, and reads from right to left.' The language I take to be Hebrew. At any rate, I can find no Greek words, and I see here a group of letters which may form one of the few Hebrew words that I know, the word badim, lies. But you had better get it deciphered by an expert. If it is Hebrew, said Badger, we can manage it all right. There are plenty of Jews at our disposal. You had better take that paper to the British Museum, said Thorndyke, and submit it to the keeper of the Phoenician antiquities for decipherment. Inspector Badger smiled a foxy smile, as he deposited the paper in his pocket-book. "'We'll see what we can make of it ourselves first, he said. "'But many thanks for your advice, all the same, doctor. "'No, Mr. James, I can't give you any information just at present. "'You had better apply at the hospital.' "'I suspect,' said Thorndyke, as we took our way homewards, 
that Mr. James has collected enough material for his purpose already. He must have followed us from the hospital, and I have no doubt that he has his report with full details mentally arranged at this moment, and I am not sure that he didn't get a peep at the mysterious paper in spite of the inspector's precautions. "'By the way,' I said, "'what do you make of the document?' "'A cipher, most probably,' he replied. "'It is written in the primitive Semitic alphabet, which, as you know, is practically identical with primitive Greek. It is written from right to left, like the Phoenician, Hebrew, and Moabite, as well as the earliest Greek inscriptions.' The paper is common cream-laid note-paper, and the ink is ordinary indelible Chinese ink, such as is used by draftsmen. Those are the facts, and without further study of the document itself, they don't carry us very far. Why do you think it is a cipher, rather than a document in straightforward Hebrew? Because it is obviously a secret message of some kind. Now, every educated Jew knows more or less Hebrew, and although he is able to read and write only the modern square Hebrew character, it is so easy to transpose one alphabet into another that the mere language would afford no security. Therefore, I expect that, when the experts translate this document, the translation or transliteration will be a mere farrago of unintelligible nonsense. But we shall see. And meanwhile, the facts that we have offer several interesting suggestions which are well worth consideration. As, for instance, "'Now, my dear Jervis,' said Thorndyke, shaking an admonitory forefinger at me, "'don't, I pray you, give way to mental indolence. You have these few facts that I have mentioned.' Consider them separately and collectively, and in their relation to the circumstances. Don't attempt to suck my brain when you have an excellent brain of your own to suck. On the following morning the papers fully justified my colleague's opinion of Mr. James. All the events which had occurred, as well as a number that had not, were given in the fullest and most vivid detail, a lengthy reference being made to the paper, found on the person of the dead anarchist, and written in a private shorthand or cryptogram. The report concluded with the gratifying, though untrue, statement that, in this intricate and important case, the police have wisely secured the assistance of Dr. John Thorndyke, to whose acute intellect and vast experience the portentous cryptogram will doubtless soon deliver up its secret. "'Very flattering,' laughed Thorndyke, to whom I read the extract on his return from the hospital. "'But a little awkward if it should induce our friends to deposit a few trifling mementos in the form of nitro-compounds on our main staircase or in the cellars. By the way, I met Superintendent Miller on London Bridge. The cryptogram, as Mr. James calls it, has set Scotland Yard in a mighty ferment. Naturally, what have they done in the matter? They adopted my suggestion, after all, finding that they could make nothing of it themselves, and took it to the British Museum. The museum people referred them to Professor Popelbaum, the great paleographer, to whom they accordingly submitted it. Does he express any opinion about it? Yes, provisionally. After a brief examination, he found it to consist of a number of Hebrew words sandwiched between apparently meaningless groups of letters. He furnished the superintendent offhand with a translation of the words, and Miller forthwith struck off a number of hectograph copies of it, which he has distributed among the senior officials of his department, so that at present—here Thorndyke gave a vent to a soft chuckle—Scotland Yard is engaged in a sort of missing word, or rather missing sense, competition. Miller invited me to join in the sport and to that end presented me with one of the hectograph copies on which to exercise my wits, together with a photograph of the document. "'And shall you?' I asked. "'Not I,' he replied, laughing. "'In the first place, I have not been formally consulted, and consequently am a passive, though interested, spectator. In the second place, I have a theory of my own, which I shall test if the occasion arises. But if you would like to take part in the competition, I am authorized to show you the photograph and the translation. I will pass them on to you, and I wish you joy of them.' 
He handed me the photograph and a sheet of paper that he had just taken from his pocket-book, and watched me with grim amusement as I read out the first few lines. Woe, city, lies, robbery, prey, noise, whip, rattling, wheel, horse, chariot, day, darkness, gloominess, clouds, darkness, morning, mountain, people, strong, fire, them, flame. It doesn't look very promising at first sight, I remarked. What is the professor's theory? His theory, provisionally, of course, is that the words form the message, and the groups of letters represent mere filled-up spaces between the words. But surely, I protested, that would be a very transparent device. Thorndyke laughed. There is a childlike simplicity about it, said he, that is highly attractive, but discouraging. It is much more probable that the words are dummies, and that the letters contain the message. Or again, the solution may lie in an entirely different direction. But listen, is that a cab coming here? It was. It drew up opposite our chambers, and a few moments later a brisk step ascending the stairs heralded a smart rat-tat at our door. Flinging open the ladder, I found myself confronted by a well-dressed stranger, who, after a quick glance at me, peered inquisitively over my shoulder into the room. "'I am relieved, Dr. Jervis,' said he, "'to find you and Dr. Thorndyke at home, as I have come on somewhat urgent professional business. My name,' he continued, entering in response to my invitation, "'is Barton.' but you don't know me, though I know you both by sight. I have come to ask you if one of you, or better still, both, could come to-night and see my brother. That, said Thorndyke, depends on the circumstances and on the whereabouts of your brother. The circumstances, said Mr. Barton, are, in my opinion, highly suspicious, and I will place them before you, of course, in strict confidence. Thorndyke nodded and indicated a chair. My brother, continued Mr. Barton, taking the proffered seat, has recently married for the second time. His age is fifty-five, and that of his wife twenty-six, and I may say that the marriage has been, well, by no means a success. Now, within the last fortnight, my brother has been attacked by a mysterious and extremely painful affection of the stomach, to which his doctor seems unable to give a name. It has resisted all treatment hitherto. Day by day the pain and distress increase, and I feel that, unless something decisive is done, the end cannot be far off." "'Is the pain worse after taking food?' inquired Thorndyke. "'That's just it,' exclaimed our visitor. "'I see what is in your mind, and it has been in mine, too, so much so that I have tried repeatedly to obtain samples of the food that he is taking, and this morning I succeeded.' Here he took from his pocket a wide-mouthed bottle, which, disengaging from its paper wrappings, he laid on the table. When I called, he was taking his breakfast of arrowroot, which he complained had a gritty taste, supposed by his wife to be due to the sugar.' Now I had provided myself with this bottle, and during the absence of his wife I managed unobserved to convey a portion of the arrowroot that he had left into it, and I should be greatly obliged if you would examine it and tell me if this arrowroot contains anything that it should not. He pushed the bottle across to Thorndyke, who carried it to the window, and extracting a small quantity of the contents with a glass rod, examined the pasty mass with the aid of a lens, then, lifting the bell-glass cover from the microscope which stood on its table by the window, he smeared a small quantity of the suspected matter onto a glass slip, and placed it on the stage of the instrument. "'I observe a number of crystalline particles in this,' he said after a brief inspection, "'which have the appearance of arsenious acid.' "'Ah!' ejaculated Mr. Barton. "'Just as I feared. But are you certain?' "'No,' replied Thorndyke. "'But the matter is easily tested.' He pressed the button of the bell that communicated with the laboratory, a summons that brought the laboratory assistance from his lair with characteristic promptitude. "'Will you please prepare a Marsh's apparatus, Polton?' said Thorndyke. "'I have a couple ready, sir,' replied Polton. 
then pour the acid into one and bring it to me with a tile as his familiar vanished silently thorndyke turned to mr barton supposing we find arsenic in this arrowroot as we probably shall what do you want us to do i want you to come and see my brother replied our client why not take a note from me to his doctor no no i want you to come i should like you both to come and put a stop at once to this dreadful business consider it is a matter of life and death you won't refuse i beg you not to refuse me your help in these terrible circumstances well said thorndyke as his assistant reappeared let us first see what the test has to tell us polton advanced to the table on which he deposited a small flask the contents of which were in a state of brisk effervescence a bottle labelled calcium hypochlorite and a white porcelain tile the flask was fitted with a safety funnel and a glass tube drawn out to a fine jet to which polton cautiously applied a lighted match instantly there sprang from the jet a tiny pale violet flame thorndyke now took the tile and held it in the flame for several seconds when the appearance of the surface remained unchanged save for the small circle of condensed moisture his next proceeding was to thin the arrowroot with distilled water until it was quite fluid and then pour a small quantity into the funnel it ran slowly down the tube into the flask with the bubbling contents of which it became speedily mixed almost immediately a change began to appear in the character of the flame which from a pale violet turned gradually to a sickly blue while above it hung a faint cloud of white smoke once more thorndyke held the tile above the jet but this time no sooner had the pallid flame touched the cold surface of the porcelain than there appeared on the latter a glistening black stain that is pretty conclusive observed thorndyke lifting the stopper out of the reagent bottle but we will apply the final test he dropped a few drops of the hypochlorite solution onto the tile and immediately the black stain faded away and vanished we can now answer your question mr barton said he replacing the stopper as he turned to our client the specimen that you brought us certainly contains arsenic and in very considerable quantities then exclaimed mr barton starting from his chair you will come and help me to rescue my brother from this dreadful pearl don't refuse me dr thorndyke for mercy's sake don't refuse thorndyke reflected for a moment before we decide said he we must see what engagements we have with a quick significant glance at me he walked into the office whither i followed in some bewilderment for i knew that we had no engagements for the evening now jervis said thorndyke as he closed the office door what are we to do we must go i suppose i replied it seems a pretty urgent case it does he agreed of course the man may be telling the truth after all you don't think he is then no it is a plausible tale but there is too much arsenic in that arrowroot still i think i ought to go it is an ordinary professional risk but there is no reason why you should put your head into the noose thank you i said somewhat huffily i don't see what risk there is but if any exists i claim the right to share it very well he answered with a smile we will both go i think we can take care of ourselves he re-entered the sitting-room and announced his decision to mr barton whose relief and gratitude were quite pathetic but said thorndyke you have not yet told us where your brother lives rexford was the reply rexford in essex it is an out-of-the-way place but if we catch the seven fifteen from liverpool street we shall be there in an hour and a half and as to the return you know the trains i suppose oh yes replied our client i will see that you don't miss your train back then i will be with you in a minute said thorndyke and taking the still bubbling flask he retired to the laboratory whence he returned in a few minutes carrying his hat and overcoat the cab which had brought our client was still waiting and we were soon rattling through the streets toward the station where we arrived in time to furnish ourselves with dinner baskets and select our compartment at leisure 
During the early part of the journey our companion was in excellent spirits. He dispatched the cold fowl from the basket, and quaffed the rather indifferent claret with as much relish as if he had not had a single relation in the world, and after dinner he became genial to the verge of hilarity. But as the time went on there crept into his manner a certain anxious restlessness. He became silent and preoccupied, and several times fervently consulted his watch. "'The train is confoundedly late,' he exclaimed irritably. Seven minutes behind time already!' "'A few minutes more or less are not of much consequence,' said Thorndyke. "'No, of course not, but still. Ah, thank heaven, here we are!' He thrust his head out of the off-side window, and gazed eagerly down the line. Then, leaping to his feet, he bustled out onto the platform while the train was still moving. Even as we alighted, a warning bell rang furiously on the up-platform, and as Mr. Barton hurried us through the empty booking-office to the outside of the station, the rumble of the approaching train could be heard above the noise made by our own train moving off. "'My carriage does not seem to have arrived yet,' exclaimed Mr. Barton, looking anxiously up the station approach. "'If you will wait here a moment, I will go and make inquiries.' He darted back into the booking-office, and threw it onto the platform, just as the up-train roared into the station. Thorndyke followed him with quick but stealthy steps, and peering out of the booking-office door, watched his proceedings. Then he turned and beckoned to me. "'There he goes,' said he, pointing to an iron footbridge that spanned the line, and as I looked I saw, clearly defined against the dim night sky, a flying figure racing toward the upside. It was hardly two-thirds across when the guard's whistle sang out its shrill warning. "'Quick, Jervis!' exclaimed Thorndyke. "'She's off!' He leaped down onto the line, whither I followed instantly, and crossing the rails we clambered up together onto the footboard opposite an empty first-class compartment. Thorndyke's magazine knife, containing, among other implements, a railway key, was already in his hand. The door was speedily unlocked, and as we entered, Thorndyke ran through and looked out onto the platform. "'Just in time!' he exclaimed. "'He is in one of the forward compartments.' He relocked the door, and, seating himself, proceeded to fill his pipe. "'And now,' said I, as the train moved out of the station, "'perhaps you will explain this little comedy.' "'With pleasure,' he replied, "'if it needs any explanation.' but you can hardly have forgotten Mr. James's flattering remarks in his report of the Greek Street incident, clearly giving the impression that the mysterious document was in my possession. When I read that, I knew I must look out for some attempt to recover it, though I hardly expected such promptness. Still, when Mr. Barton called without credentials or appointment, I viewed him with some suspicion. That suspicion deepened when he wanted us both to come. It deepened further when I found an impossible quantity of arsenic in his sample, and it gave place to certainty when— Having allowed him to select the trains by which we were to travel, I went up to the laboratory and examined the timetable, for I then found that the last train for London left Rexford ten minutes after we were due to arrive. Obviously this was a plan to get us both safely out of the way while he and some of his friends ransacked our chambers for the missing document. I see, and that accounts for his extraordinary anxiety at the lateness of the train. But why did you come, if you knew it was a plant? "'My dear fellow,' said Thorndyke, "'I never miss an interesting experience if I can help it. There are possibilities in this, too, don't you see? But supposing his friends have broken into our chambers already? That contingency has been provided for, but I think they will wait for Mr. Barton, and us. Our train, being the last one up, stopped at every station, and crawled slothfully in the intervals, so that it was past eleven o'clock when we reached Liverpool Street. Here we got out cautiously, and mingling with the crowd, followed the unconscious Barton up the platform, through the barrier, and out into the street. He seemed in no special hurry, for, after pausing to light a cigar, he set off at an easy pace up New Broad Street. 
Thorndyke hailed a hansom, and motioning me to enter, directed the cabman to drive to Clifford's Inn Passage. "'Sit well back,' said he, as we rattled away up New Broad Street. "'We shall be passing our gay deceiver presently. In fact, there he is, a living, walking illustration of the folly of underrating the intelligence of one's adversary.' At Clifford's Inn Passage we dismissed the cab, and retiring into the shadow of the dark, narrow alley, kept an eye on the gate of Inner Temple Lane. In about twenty minutes we observed our friend approaching on the south side of Fleet Street. He halted at the gate, plied the knocker, and after a brief parley with the night porter, vanished through the wicket. We waited yet five minutes more, and then, having given him time to get clear of the entrance, we crossed the road. The porter looked at us with some surprise. "'There's a gentleman just gone down to your chambers, sir,' said he. "'He told me you were expecting him.' "'Quite right,' said Thorndyke, with a dry smile. "'I was. Good night.' We slunk down the lane, past the church, and through the gloomy cloisters, giving a wide berth to all lamps and lighted entries, until, emerging into paper buildings, we crossed at the darkest part to King's Bench Walk, where Thorndyke made straight for the chambers of our friend Anstey, which were two doors above our own. "'Why are we coming here?' I asked as we ascended the stairs. But the question needed no answer when we reached the landing, for through the open door of our friend's chambers I could see in the darkened room Anstey himself, with two uniformed constables and a couple of plain clothesmen. "'There has been no signal yet, sir,' said one of the latter, whom I recognize as a detective sergeant of our division. "'No,' said Thorndyke, "'but the M.C. has arrived. He came in five minutes before us.' "'Then,' exclaimed Anstey, "'the ball will open shortly, ladies and gents. The boards are waxed, the fiddlers are tuning up, and—' "'Not quite so loud, if you please, sir,' said the sergeant. "'I think there is somebody coming up Crown Office Row.' The ball had, in fact, opened. As we peered cautiously out of the open window, keeping well back in the darkened room, a stealthy figure crept out of the shadow, crossed the road, and stole noiselessly into the entry of Thorndyke's chambers. It was quickly followed by a second figure, and then by a third, in which I recognized our elusive client. "'Now, listen for the signal,' said Thorndyke. "'They won't waste time. Confound that clock!' The soft-voiced bell of the inner temple clock, mingling with the harsher tones of St. Dunstan's and the law courts, slowly told out the hour of midnight, and as the last reverberations were dying away, some metallic object, apparently a coin, dropped with a sharp clink onto the pavement under our window. At the sound, the watchers simultaneously sprang to their feet. "'You two go first, said the sergeant, addressing the uniformed men, who thereupon stole noiselessly, in their rubber-soled boots, down the stone stairs and along the pavement. The rest of us followed, with less attention to silence, and as we ran up to Thorndyke's chambers we were aware of quick but stealthy footsteps on the stairs above. "'They've been at work, you see,' whispered one of the constables, flashing his lantern onto the iron-bound outer door of our sitting-room, on which the marks of a large jemmy were plainly visible. The sergeant nodded grimly, and bidding the constables to remain on the landing, led the way upwards. As we ascended, faint rustlings continued to be audible from above, and on the second-floor landing we met a man descending briskly, but without hurry, from the third. It was Mr. Barton, and I could not but admire the composure with which he passed the two detectives. But suddenly his glance fell on Thorndyke, and his composure vanished. With a wild stare of incredulous horror, he halted as if petrified. Then he broke away and raced furiously down the stairs, and after a moment a muffled shout and the sound of a scuffle told us that he had received a check. On the next flight we met two more men, who, more hurried and less self-possessed, endeavoured to push past, but the sergeant barred the way. "'Why, bless me!' exclaimed the latter. "'It's Moki, and isn't that Tom Harris?' "'It's all right, Sergeant,' said Moki plaintively, striving to escape from the officer's grip. "'We've come to the wrong house, that's all.' 
the sergeant smiled indulgently i know he replied but you're always coming to the wrong house moki and now you're just coming along with me to the right house he slipped his hand inside his captive's coat and adroitly fished out a large folding jemmy whereupon the discomforted burglar abandoned all further protest on our return to the first floor we found mr barton sulkily awaiting us handcuffed to one of the constables and watched by Poulton with pensive disapproval. "'I needn't trouble you to-night, doctor,' said the sergeant, as he marshalled his little troop of captors and captives. "'You'll hear from us in the morning. Good night, sir.' The melancholy procession moved off down the stairs, and we retired to our chambers with Anstey to smoke a last pipe. "'A capable man, that Barton,' observed Thorndyke. "'Ready, plausible, and ingenious, but spoilt by prolonged contact with fools. I wonder if the police will perceive the significance of this little affair.' "'They'll be more acute than I am, if they do,' said I. "'Naturally,' interposed Anstey, who loved to cheek his revered senior, "'because there isn't any. It's only Thorndyke's bounce. He is really in a deuce of a fog himself.' However this may have been, the police were a good deal puzzled by the incident, for, on the following morning, we received a visit from no less a person than Superintendent Miller of Scotland Yard. "'This is a queer business,' said he, coming to the point at once. "'This burglary, I mean.' why should they want to crack your place right here in the temple too you've got nothing of value here have you no hard stuff as they call it for instance not so much as a silver teaspoon replied thorndyke who had a conscientious objection to plate of all kinds it's odd said the superintendent deuced odd when we got your note we thought that anarchist idiots had mixed you up with the case you saw the papers i suppose and wanted to go through your rooms for some reason we thought we had our hands on the gang instead of which we find a party of common crooks that we're sick of the sight of i tell you sir it's annoying when you think you've hooked a salmon to bring up a blooming eel it must be a great disappointment thorndyke agreed suppressing a smile it is said the detective not but what we're glad enough to get these beggars especially halkett or barton as he calls himself a mighty slippery customer is halkett and mischievous too but we're not wantin any disappointments just now there was that big jewel job in piccadilly taplin and horns I don't mind telling you that we've not got a ghost of the clue. Then there's this anarchist affair. We're all in the dark there, too. But what about the cipher? asked Thorndyke. Oh, hang the cipher! exclaimed the detective irritably. This Professor Popplebaum may be a very learned man, but he doesn't help us much. He says the document is in Hebrew, and he has translated it into double Dutch. Just listen to this. He dragged out of his pocket a bundle of papers, and dabbing down a photograph of the document before Thorndyke, commenced to read the professor's report. "'The document is written in the characters of the well-known inscription of Mesha, king of Moab. Who the devil's he? Never heard of him. Well known, indeed. The language is Hebrew, and the words are separated by groups of letters which are meaningless, and obviously introduced to mislead and confuse the reader. The words themselves are not strictly consecutive, but by the interpolation of certain other words a series of intelligible sentences is obtained, the meaning of which is not very clear, but is no doubt allegorical.' The method of decipherment is shown in the accompanying tables, and the full rendering suggested on the enclosed sheet. It is to be noted that the writer of this document was apparently quite unacquainted with the Hebrew language, as appears from the absence of any grammatical construction. That's the professor's purport, doctor, and here are the tables showing how he worked it out. It makes my head spin to look at him. He handed to Thorndyke a bundle of ruled sheets, which my colleague examined attentively for a while, and then passed on to me. "'This is very systematic and thorough,' said he. "'But now let us see the final result at which he arrives.' "'It may be all very systematic,' growled the superintendent, sorting out his papers. "'But I tell you, sir, it's all bosh.' The latter word he jerked out viciously, 
as he slapped down on the table the final product of the professor's labors. There, he continued, that's what he calls the full rendering, and I reckon it'll make your hair curl. It might be a message from Bedlam. Thorndyke took up the first sheet, and as he compared the constructed renderings with the literal translation, the ghost of a smile stole across his usually immovable countenance. "'The meaning is certainly a little obscure,' he observed, though the reconstruction is highly ingenious, and, moreover, I think the professor is probably right. That is to say, the words which he has supplied are probably the omitted parts of the passages from which the words of the cryptogram were taken. What do you think, Jervis?' He handed me the two papers, of which one gave the actual words of the cryptogram, and the other a suggested reconstruction, with omitted words supplied. The first read, Whip, noise, prey, robbery, lies, city, woe, horse, wheel, rattling, darkness, day, chariot, mountain, morning, darkness, cloud, gloominess, flame, them, fire, strong, people. Turning to the second paper, I read out the suggested rendering. Woe to the bloody city! It is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip, and the noise of the rattling of the wheels, and of the prancing horses, and of the jumping chariots. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. Here the first sheet ended, and as I laid it down, Thorndyke looked at me inquiringly. There is a good deal of reconstruction in proportion to the original matter, I objected. The professor has supplied more than three-quarters of the final rendering. Exactly, burst in the superintendent. It's all professor and no cryptogram. Still, I think the reading is correct, said Thorndyke, as far as it goes, that is. Good Lord! exclaimed the dismayed detective. Do you mean to tell me, sir, that all that balderdash is the real meaning of the thing? I don't say that, replied Thorndyke. I say it is correct as far as it goes but I doubt its being the solution of the cryptogram. "'Have you been studying that photograph that I gave you?' demanded Miller, with sudden eagerness. "'I have looked at it,' said Thorndyke evasively. "'But I should like to examine the original, if you have it with you.' "'I have,' said the detective. "'Professor Popplebaum sent it back with the solution. You can have a look at it, though I can't leave it with you without special authority.' He drew the document from his pocket-book and handed it to Thorndyke, who took it over to the window and scrutinized it closely. From the window he drifted into the adjacent office, closing the door after him, and presently the sound of a faint explosion told me that he had lighted the gas fire. "'Of course,' said Miller, taking up the translation again. "'This gibberish is the sort of stuff you might expect from a parcel of crack-brained anarchists, but it doesn't seem to mean anything.' "'Not to us,' I agreed, but the phrases may have some prearranged significance. And then there are the letters between the words. It is possible that they may really form a cipher.' "'I suggested that to the professor,' said Miller, "'but he wouldn't hear of it. He is sure they are only dummies.' "'I think he is probably mistaken, and so, I fancy, does my colleague. But we shall hear what he has to say presently.' "'Oh, I know what he will say,' growled Miller. "'He will put the thing under the microscope and tell us who made the paper, and what the ink is composed of, and then we shall be just where we are.' The superintendent was evidently deeply depressed. We sat for some time, pondering in silence, on the vague sentences of the professor's translation— until at length Thorndyke reappeared, holding the document in his hand. He laid it quietly on the table by the officer, and then inquired, "'Is this an official consultation?' "'Certainly,' replied Miller. "'I was authorized to consult you respecting the translation, but nothing was said about the original. Still, if you want it for further study, I will get it for you.' "'No, thank you,' said Thorndyke. "'I have finished with it. 
My theory turned out to be correct. Your theory? exclaimed the superintendent eagerly. Do you mean to say? And as you are consulting me officially, I may as well give you this. He held out a sheet of paper, which the detective took from him and began to read. What is this? he asked, looking up at Thorndyke with a puzzled frown. Where did it come from? It is the solution of the cryptogram, replied Thorndyke. The detective reread the contents of the paper, and with the frown of perplexity deepening, once more gazed at my colleague. This is a joke, sir. You are fooling me, he said sulkily. Nothing of the kind, answered Thorndyke. That is the genuine solution. But it is impossible, exclaimed Miller. Just look at it, Dr. Jervis. I took the paper from his hand, and as I glanced at it, I had no difficulty in understanding his surprise. It bore a short inscription in printed Roman capitals, thus. The Piccadilly stuff is up the chimbley. 416 Warder Street, second floor back. It was hid because of old Moki's Jude. Moki is a blighter. Then that fellow wasn't an anarchist at all, I exclaimed. No, said Miller, he was one of Moki's gang. We suspected Moki of being mixed up with that job, but we couldn't fix it on him. By Jove! he added, slapping his thigh. If this is right, and I can lay my hands on the loot, can you lend me a bag, doctor? I'm off to Warder Street this very moment. We furnished him with an empty suitcase, and from the window watched him making for Mitre Court at a smart double. I wonder if he will find the booty, said Thorndyke. It just depends on whether the hiding place was known to more than one of the gang. Well, it has been a quaint case, and instructive, too. I suspect our friend Barton and the evasive Schoenberg were the collaborators who produced that curiosity of literature. May I ask how you deciphered the thing? I said. It didn't appear to take long. It didn't. It was merely a matter of testing a hypothesis. And you ought not to have to ask that question, he added, with mock severity, seeing that you had what turned out to have been all the necessary facts two days ago. But I will prepare a document and demonstrate to you tomorrow morning." So, Miller was successful in his quest, said Thorndyke, as we smoked our morning pipes after breakfast. The entire swag, as he calls it, was up the chimbley, undisturbed. He handed me a note which had been left with the empty suitcase by a messenger shortly before, and I was about to read it when an agitated knock was heard at our door. The visitor, whom I admitted, was a rather haggard and disheveled elderly gentleman, who, as he entered, peered inquisitively through his concave spectacles from one of us to the other. "'Allow me to introduce myself, gentlemen,' he said. "'I am Professor Popplebaum.' Thorndyke bowed and offered a chair. "'I called yesterday afternoon,' our visitor continued, "'at Scotland Yard, where I heard of your remarkable decipherment and of the convincing proof of its correctness. Thereupon I borrowed the cryptogram, and have spent the entire night in studying it, but I cannot connect your solution with any of the characters. I wonder if you would do me the great favour of enlightening me as to your method of decipherment and so save me further sleepless nights, you may rely on my discretion. "'Have you the document with you?' asked Thorndyke. The professor produced it from his pocket-book, and passed it to my colleague. "'You observe, professor,' said the latter, "'that this is a laid paper and has no watermark?' "'Yes, I noticed that.' "'And that the writing is an indelible Chinese ink?' "'Yes, yes,' said the savant impatiently. "'But it is the inscription that interests me, not the paper and ink.' "'Precisely,' said Thorndyke. "'Now, it was the ink that interested me when I caught a glimpse of the document three days ago. Why, I asked myself, should anyone use this troublesome medium? For this appears to be stick ink, when good writing ink is to be had. What advantages has Chinese ink over writing ink? It has several advantages as a drawing ink, but for writing purposes it has only one. It is quite unaffected by wet. The obvious inference, then, was that this document was, for some reason, likely to be exposed to wet. But this inference instantly suggested another, 
which I was yesterday able to test, thus. He filled a tumbler with water, and rolling up the document, dropped it in. Immediately there began to appear on it a new set of characters of a curious grey colour. In a few seconds Thorndyke lifted out the wet paper, and held it up to the light. Now there was plainly visible an inscription in transparent lettering, like a very distinct watermark. It was printed in Roman capitals, written across the other writing, and read, The Piccadilly stuff is up the chimbley, 416 Warder Street, second floor back. It was hid because of old Moki's Jude. Moki is a blighter. The professor regarded the inscription with profound disfavor. How do you suppose this was done? he asked gloomily. I will show you, said Thorndyke. I have prepared a piece of paper to demonstrate the process to Dr. Jervis. It is exceedingly simple. He fetched from the office a small plate of glass and a photographic dish in which a piece of thin note paper was soaking in water. This paper, said Thorndyke, lifting it out and laying it on the glass, has been soaking all night and is now quite pulpy. He spread a dry sheet of paper over the wet one, and on the former wrote heavily with a hard pencil, Moki is a blighter. On lifting the upper sheet, the writing was seen to be transferred in a deep grey to the wet paper, and when the latter was held up to the light, the inscription stood out clear and transparent, as if written with oil. When this dries, said Thorndyke, the writing will completely disappear, but it will reappear whenever the paper is again wetted. The professor nodded. Very ingenious, said he. A sort of artificial palimpsest, in fact. But I do not understand how that illiterate man could have written in the difficult Moabite script. He did not, said Thorndyke. The cryptogram was probably written by one of the leaders of the gang, who, no doubt, supplied copies to the other members to use instead of blank paper for secret communications. The object of the Moabite writing was evidently to divert attention from the paper itself, in case the communication fell into the wrong hands, and I must say it seems to have answered its purpose very well. The professor started, stung by the sudden recollection of his labours. Yes, he snorted, but I am a scholar, sir, not a policeman. Every man to his trade. He snatched up his hat, and with a curt good morning, flung out of the room in dudgeon. Thorndyke laughed softly. Poor professor, he murmured. Our playful friend Barton has much to answer for. End of The Moabite Cipher by R. Austin Freeman An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, 1891, by Ambrose Bice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Althea Bay. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a rope. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross-temper above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the sleepers, supporting the metals of the railway, supplied a footing for him and his executioners, two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest, a formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring 
at the center of the bridge. They merely blockade the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then curving was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle acclivity topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway of the slope between bridge and the fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of the rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood in the right of the lane, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statutes to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and a pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen were not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and moved himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one space. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost but not quite reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between the two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling waters of the stream, racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the stream. How slowly it appeared to move! What a sluggish stream! He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mist upon the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, 
the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him, and now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was a sharp sound which he could neither ignore nor understand, a distinct metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its occurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each stroke with impatience, and he knew not why, apprehension. The interval of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greatest infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ears like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomsman's brain, rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant, and the sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planner of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like the other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and artfully devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with the gallant army that had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity he felt would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Miss Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands, while she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. The Yanks are repairing the railroad, said the man, and are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains, will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. Oh, about thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad 
and a single sentinel in this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian, and a student of hanging should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What would he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like tow. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this date he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agony seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periosity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, unencompassed in a luminous cloud from which he was now merely the fiery heart, without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A fightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river? The idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot, that is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist appraised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent, what superhuman strength. Ah, that was a fine endeavor. Bravo. The card fell away. His arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back. He thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang 
that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly, his brain was on fire, his heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wretched with an insupportable anguish. But his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draught of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf, saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of his body parting the water. He had come to the surface, facing down the stream. In a moment the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the two soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain has drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, splattering his face with spray. He heard a second report and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half around. He was again looking into the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ear. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and piteously, with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured intervals fell those cruel words.
Attention, company, soldiers, arms. Ready, aim, fire. Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands and fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and his neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time under water. He was perceptibly further downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to his steps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, and strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forest, the now distant bridge, fort, and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind the projecting points which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the banks were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange rosette light shone through the branches among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of harps. He had no wish to perfect his escape, was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whist and a rattle of grapeshot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. 
The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodsman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, and famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him to what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point, like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the woods, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which once, twice again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, he found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. Eli's eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved his fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he had merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. And how beautiful she is! He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the tempers of the Owl Creek Bridge. End of story. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland 
Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.